Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM, channel 127. Welcome to Tell Me Everything, bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble. I'm John Fugelsang. Here in Manhattan, New York City, Thea is producing us from Brooklyn. Chris, our executive producer, is being executive in production like down in South Carolina. And for the next couple hours, we're going to be with you right here on channel 127 at 866-997-4748. We would love to hear from you. We are always so excited to welcome Kenneth C. Davis back to our show. He is the author, of course, of Don't Know Much About History, a book that spent 35 consecutive weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and gave rise to the Don't Know Much About series of books, which has a combined imprint total of nearly 5 million copies. He's also the author of, for my money, the best book about slavery since Roots, In the Shadow of Liberty, The Hidden History of Slavery, Four Presidents and Five Black Lives. He was Extremely prescient in publishing More Deadly Than War, The Hidden History of the Spanish Flu in the First World War, just in time for the 100-year anniversary and a brand new pandemic. And of course, in 2020, we loved his book, Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy. More recently, he's the author of Great Short Books. A Year of Reading Briefly. Now, Ken is a frequent presence in the media. You've seen him and heard him on NPR, CBS This Morning, C-SPAN, and CNN. He, of course, has been a commentator for All Things Considered on NPR. And he's written for the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, and Smithsonian Magazine. Happy Memorial Day and welcome back to the great Kenneth C. Davis. Hey, John, uh, you've left out a frequent guest of the John Fugelsang show, which is one of my favorite places to be. So glad to be back aboard. Um, I'll, I'll just preface this a bit by saying I always struggle a little bit with Happy Memorial Day, but I understand it. Yes, it is. It is a holiday and we are all feeling celebratory. Um, but it is, of course, the most solemn, somber day on the american uh, uh calendar and even everyone's talking i'm sure about the first long weekend of summer and swimsuit sales and whatever else they put on sale for memorial day it is the day on which we mark 
those who gave their lives in service to this uh, to this country, what Abraham Lincoln called the last full measure of devotion in the Gettysburg Address. So um, it's a happy day because we are free and we get to enjoy it for the moment, I suppose. But it is a, a day that I, I really think people need to uh, take a minute to reflect on what the history of this holiday means, uh, what it meant in 1868 when it was sort of unofficially born, and um, how it's changed o- over the years. But it's it's to me always one of been one of the most important holidays of the year. Uh, when I was a kid growing up just outside of New York City, John Memorial Day was in a way bigger than the 4th of July because school was still in session then. And all of the schools, because Memorial Day back then was a a date on the calendar, not a a Monday holiday, um, it was a day that school was closed, but for every school to join in the town parade. And it was really much more of the, 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 the organizing civic event in my town growing up. So I have a, a really powerful recollection of, of what Memorial Day meant. Um, my father, who is uh, long gone, was a, a World War II veteran. Um, so that also uh, gave more meaning. And I always remember those veterans coming into school to sell us those little red poppies, paper poppies. And yes. I think it was a quarter. And, you know, it was just a, one of the rights of my childhood that that uh, we did that. And so this is, a, a to me, a very solemn and an important day. Uh, I always talk about history being about real people doing real things. And we can't just talk about dates and battles and speeches. And this is a day when I think we really have to think about the real people who gave their lives in service to this country. I agree. I grew up knowing it was an important day because I had the most liberal dad on the block, but also a a very conservative dad who always flew the flag. We had a flagpole and my dad would always raise the flag every Memorial Day. But for me as a kid, it wasn't really taught in schools what the day meant. And you know this. So many Americans confuse Memorial Day with Veterans Day. For me as a kid, Memorial Day was always when the latest Star Wars or Indiana Jones film would open. But, you know, you're right. Whenever the day's mentioned, very often our first thoughts go to barbecues, mattress sales, air conditioner sales. And Americans aren't really aware that much about the roots or the traditions behind Memorial Day. And that's it's highly preventable. And yet it seems to be epidemic. I'd like to talk a little bit, Ken, about for those who don't much about it, how this national holiday came about born of something once called Decoration Day, wasn't it? That's absolutely correct. We have to go back to the American Civil War cross, of course, fought between 1861 and 1865. The death toll was extraordinary, horrific. Uh, used to be said 600,000, which is a, an extraordinary number, um, American dead in four years of fighting. Uh, that's a large number by itself. That's more than all of our other wars combined. That's right. Uh, uh, that's a, a, also an astonishing uh, idea. It was also 2% of the American population at the time. Mm. Um, uh, just an extraordinary figure. A lot of historians have really upped that number in the past few years. Um, past 700 and maybe close to 800,000 people when you count in civilians. Uh, That's right. uh, So the country was torn apart, torn in two. 
And for all of the reasons that we now fully understand, it had nothing to do with states' rights. It was really a war fought about slavery. Uh, not the morality of slavery, but the political power and the financial power that slavery represented in 19th century America. After the war was over uh, in 1868, there was a very, very powerful veterans organization called the Grand Army of the Republic. It was led yes. by a, a guy named uh, John Logan, who had been a Civil War general. And he was that, at that point uh, then a member of Congress, a very powerful member of Congress. And he issued to this Grand Army of the Republic what was called General Order Number 11 in mm. uh, May of 1868. And he called for a day, May 30th, 1868, to be set aside for people to go to the grave sites of all those soldiers who had been lost in the war and put fresh flowers on their graves to decorate the graves. Hence, the, the holiday was known for a long time as Decoration Day. That's now, why. I'll come back to Logan and what he was talking about in, in a second. Just to spin out the holiday, it really did become a sort of national holiday right away, except it was still then a divisive holiday because the former Confederacy was not going to celebrate a holiday on the same day about the war and the war dead on the same day that the Yankees were celebrated. So there actually became multiple Memorial Days or Decoration Days around the country in the years after the Civil War. And it isn't until after World War One, which ends, of course, November 11th, 1918, that the idea became more than just celebrating or marking those who died in the Civil War, but beginning to mark all of those. And this is when it becomes more of a national holiday to mark all of those who had died in service to the country. And so after 1918 and the, and the deaths in World War One, about 100,000 uh, Americans lost in this in the uh, in World War One. Uh, it really did become more of a national holiday, still known in many places as Decoration Day. Gradually, it became known as Memorial Day. Really, didn't become a full official national holiday until 1968, when it was made a national holiday, and then a few years later, it was moved to the uh, Monday holiday where it is today. So, a long and sort of tortured. Uh, history of this holiday. But just to go back for a moment to that original one in 1868, Please, when yeah. John Logan issued this order, he, he said, we're going to lay down these flowers on the graveside so we don't forget, gather around their sacred remains and garland the passionless mounds above them with the choicest flowers of springtime. This is what he said, very poetic. But he says, very, very specifically, that these men had died. And he said, let no wanton foot tread rudely on these hallowed grounds. These men had died, he said, in service to, first of all, the rebellion, the treasonous rebellion, mm -hmm. and also to breaking the chains of slavery. So That's if we right. go back and look at this, uh, what this holiday meant, when he first proclaimed it, there was no question. He was talking about a, a holiday that would celebrate the Union victory 
over the Confederacy, what he called the rebellious tyranny in arms. And he also called it the reveille of freedom to a race in chains. And we should guard their graves with sacred vigilance. So for a very, very long time, that kind of rhetoric about Decoration Day was what divided the country. And uh, a few years later, uh, this was in uh, uh, 1871, so three years after the first official or semi-official Decoration Day, Frederick Douglass gives a speech in Arlington Cemetery, the national cemetery that had been uh, created during the Civil War. And he Mm -hmm. says, we are sometimes asked in the name of patriotism to forget the merits of this fearful struggle and to remember with equal admiration those who struck at the nation's life and those who struck to save it, those who fought for slavery and those who fought for liberty and justice. So this holiday, like so much of American history, has to be ultimately tied back to this question of slavery. And there are many there in this country today who would like to erase that piece of our history and not tell it because it makes some people feel ashamed. Oh, Ken, we were having such a good interview and then you had to go jamming critical race theory down our throats. You know, it was going so well. And then you had to push your agenda of teaching people that slavery really happened. And that makes white people feel bad. Yeah. That welcome to Florida. Exactly. (laughs) It's we're laughing, but it's not funny, uh, as you know, John. And yeah. so, yeah, this is this is really a torturous time in the country. It's a torturous time for me as a historian. I've been writing and talking about this for 30 years. Um, this is the essence of American history. We cannot talk about American history without understanding what the role of slavery meant in our history. It was That's there. Right. Uh, before the founding, long before the founding, as anyone who's read the 1619 Project knows, um, or anyone who's read it, most of my books knows, I talk about this uh, a, a great deal and don't know much about history, don't know much about the Civil War in in the Shadow of Liberty, which you mentioned. Yes, uh, You cannot separate this story out from the story of this nation's founding. We were a nation conceived in liberty, as Abraham Lincoln put it, but we were also a nation that was born in shackles. And we cannot forget that, we cannot overlook it, and we certainly can't brush it under the carpet. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting when you you mention General Logan, Uh, the Grand Army of the Republic wasn't really an army. It was a union fraternal organization. And when three years after the end of the war, he called for this day to decorate the graves, it it must have put him in a difficult position. He was a politician at the time, but you, you really can't call to honor the Confederate soldiers who were the ones who were fighting to preserve slavery, who were the ones having the rebellion. So I can see why it was very controversial at the time, as much as we like to fight about everything, including holidays. And I'm sure that the Confederate veterans were offended by that. Of course, it got me thinking about the great state of Florida, where Governor DeSantis dwells and how right now on their calendar, they have three state holidays devoted to honoring the Confederacy. They have Confederate Memorial Day, Jefferson Davis's birthday and Robert E. Lee's birthday. All those dates appear on the state calendar, but no official state holiday for Juneteenth. And it's amazing. One hundred and sixty odd years later to see that they celebrate the Confederacy three different days. But there's no day to celebrate 
the end of slavery. And it goes to show how these holidays that might seem so innocent are still deeply divisive and, and deeply politicized. Well, I, uh, going back to General Logan for a second and the feelings Please. there, um, when this was first announced, this Decoration Day, of course, many of the uh, soldiers, wanted, many of the families went to Arlington National Cemetery, which, in fact, was born out of the Civil War. It was property confiscated from Robert E. Lee and his family during mm. the war. Uh, it was initially used as a Union campground. And then uh, uh, a United States Union general decided this would be a perfect uh, place to create a cemetery. His own son had died uh, in the war. So he was not feeling very um, generous towards uh, the Confederates. But from the very beginning, there were Confederate soldiers, and there still are, of course, Confederate soldiers buried in Arlington. There is still, That's as right. far as I know, a Confederate memorial. They keep talking about removing that one. It hasn't happened yet. But in those days, those first years of the celebration of Decoration Day, the Grand Army of the Republic would actually post sentries at the entrance to Arlington National Cemetery and not allow the families of any Confederates who might be buried there to come in on that day. That's wow. how strong these feelings were. Uh, you got to go a long way to get me feeling bad for Confederate families. But wow, you just did it. That's just pretty powerful. Well, you know, and it's interesting because by the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, the Civil War had faded into, uh, you know, American memory. Uh, there were very, very few survivors uh, left at that point. And so Memorial Day had, in a way, become what we think of it today as a kind of a picnic day. It started out as a, you go into the cemetery to, to lay flowers, and then you took a picnic while you were doing it, and then it just became a kind of picnic holiday. And it's only with World War One, as I mentioned earlier, that the meaning of the holiday comes back again. And it was in uh, two years later, after the end of World War One, that mm -hmm. the tomb of the unknown soldier was created in Arlington mm -hmm. to honor a soldier, unidentified soldier whose remains were interred uh, in the tomb of the unknown soldier. And that's really when it becomes begins to become a much more national event and a national holiday. But as you said, there are still several states that have their own Confederate Memorial Days and they have their own holidays honoring both uh, Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee. You know, an astonishing idea to me. These men were, as General Logan put it, rebellious tyrants. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. 
Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back. You know, one of the most common and famous symbols of loss on this and other Veterans Days, as you know, Ken, you referenced it briefly, is um, the poppy. And I'm curious, wh- where did that originate? We always hear about the poppies in Flanders Field and, and on Veterans Day. How did that get started? Uh, well, you mentioned it already. The, um, the uh, poppy uh, is a symbol of loss, a symbol of remembrance. It came about uh, during World War One, just as the Civil War is responsible for creating so many of the elements that we think of as Memorial Day or Decoration Day. The decorating the flowers, uh, decorating the graves with flowers, uh, the creation of Arlington National Cemetery both come out of the Civil War. But the idea of the poppy comes about in World War One. And it goes back to a poem that was written in 1915. And I I won't uh, uh, recite the entire poem, but the beginning of it is, in Flanders fields, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. Uh, this was written by a Canadian who went to Flanders Field, one of the bloodiest battlefields in France, Belgium, uh, during World War One, And he saw this field of crosses uh, where the dead had already been buried and springing up in between them were these poppies. And uh, he writes this, uh, this poem. His name was John McRae. As I said, a Canadian surgeon serving with uh, uh, the Allied forces in France. And almost immediately, this poem rockets around the world and becomes uh, a, a, a very popular item. A young woman in America recognizes the the meaning of this, the value of it, and she starts to sell real poppies to hmm. raise money for widows and orphans. Uh, and eventually then the, sim- the, the, the real poppies become those paper poppies that I mentioned earlier. And I don't know if they, you know, I, probably they don't go into school anymore to sell them, but still on Memorial Day weekend and Veterans Day weekend, um, you'll still see guys out uh, maybe on a busy street corner or at the mall somewhere um, selling those poppies. So it is a symbol, the symbol of blood and loss and uh, and remembrance. Uh, mm. It's very, very powerfully used in uh, in England on their Remembrance Day. Um, it's, the country is filled with poppies. Um, and so that's where the idea comes from, the poppy as the symbol of loss and remembrance from the poem in Flanders Fields. You know, I have to ask you, Ken, I'd be most remiss if I didn't. I mean, the flags are always flown at half-mast on Memorial Day in honor and remembrance of those who died. And for the last three years, we here in the States have gotten very used to seeing flags flown at half-staff for another somber reason as well, over 1,100,000 Americans who have been lost from this pandemic. 
Um, and the last couple of Memorial Days, every time we've spoken, it's always been dominating. Now that it seems that there are shots in arms and we're no longer losing 3,000 a day, it's maybe a couple hundred a week. We're not out of the woods yet. There still could be more variants. But, you know, as someone who wrote a book about the last great global pandemic, the Spanish flu, which you taught me was really from Kansas. What are your thoughts on where our country is at this Memorial Day as we emerge from this terrible plague? It's a kind of interesting segue from World War One to talk about the Spanish flu, of course, because yeah. the two are completely related. Exactly. Uh, the Spanish flu, the great influenza pandemic of 1918, was really the result of the fact that there was a war being fought. Um, it didn't really start in Kansas, except that's where it started with American soldiers who were in training camps, crowded uh, tens of thousands of soldiers crowded into camps together in, in the uh, spring of 1918, that's when the first cases appeared. Those hundreds of thousands then of young men got on boats that went to Europe, crowded onto first trains and then onto boats that took them across to Europe, landed there and were crowded into trenches and barracks. And this influenza exploded first in the spring of 1918, uh, on the battlefields of, of France and across Europe. Um, this was uh, the reason it was called the Spanish flu, by the way, and we talked about this before, I'm sure, was that most of the allied countries, United States, Great Britain, France, Germany on, on the other side, um, suppressed the news. They censored newspapers. So there was really no discussion in the press of a big outbreak of influenza pandemic, killing thousands of people in a fairly grotesque way until it hit Spain. Now, Spain was neutral during World War I, and so they did not have the same censorship. And so the first report of a massive outbreak of influenza killing people and shutting down the streetcars in Madrid came out of Spain and that's how it became known as the Spanish flu. It certainly didn't start there. That's right. uh, we don't really, to this day, know where its uh, actual beginnings were, just as we don't really know about COVID's actual beginnings yet. There are a lot of theories and a lot of conspiracies floating around. So these two events are completely interrelated, the, the, the Spanish flu Absolutely. in 1918 and the end of the war in 1918, which, of course, you asked me about the difference between Memorial Day and Veterans Day. Veterans hmm. Day falls on November 11th. That's right. That was because the armistice that ended World War I was on November 11th, the 11th day of the 11th month at the 11th hour, the guns fell silent. And that became what we call for a while Armistice Day and then eventually later Veterans Day. In England and France, it is Remembrance Day, November 11th. And in the United States, Veterans Day is a day to meant to honor all veterans. Uh, in the United States, we right. uh, in, in England, that would be the day that would be equivalent to Memorial Day, to honor the war dead. But here we honor the war dead on Memorial Day. Veterans Day is to acknowledge the service of all veterans. That's the essential difference between the, uh, the two holidays. We are uh, honoring and thinking about those people who, uh, as I mentioned, Lincoln said, gave the last full measure of devotion. And 
people always ask me, well, what do you do on Memorial Day? What do you, what do you think we should do? And I think the simplest thing to do on Memorial Day is to read the Gettysburg Address. It's, nice. you know, 275 words. It took Lincoln about two minutes to say it. Um, but it is the essence of, I think, what this holiday is about and what certainly what the Civil War is about. And of course, Lincoln says in that uh, uh, in, in at the end of that speech, from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion that we hear highly resolved that these dead shall not have died in vain, that mm. this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Um, those to me are still the some of the, the greatest words ever spoken by an American president, uh, by any American, and they, I think, are the essence of what this holiday should be about. I couldn't agree more, Ken. And while I have you for our remaining minutes, um, I'd be most remiss if I didn't talk about liberty in the present tense. Uh, Ron DeSantis announced his campaign for president this week, and you and I have talked a lot about book bans, Mr. Davis. Uh, Ron DeSantis has seemed to have figured out something other authoritarians didn't figure out, how to do a book ban that's not a book ban, just pass laws that allows one parent to sue a school, sue a teacher, school a district if something is said that they don't like or a book is available that they don't, they don't like. And of course, this week, we saw Amanda Gorman, the young woman who so movingly read a poem at President Biden's inaugural, have her entire poem pulled from the Miami-Dade County uh, school district because one parent who also demanded four other books be banned, all of which dealt with the black or Latino experience. Ken, are, are book bans becoming more sophisticated? I mean, do they just keep trying to find new ways to do this? Or is this more performative, a, a pale Xerox of a Xerox of what a real book ban used to look like? No, John, I think it really is. a. There's a big difference. And uh, I, I would just point out, first of all, historically speaking, I, I can always find history and everything. We just passed the 90th anniversary of the most notorious book burning in history, the Berlin book burning uh, under the Nazis in May of 1933, where they burned books not only by Germans uh, and not only by German Jews, but Germans of uh, many different Germans, including Thomas Mann, the greatest German novelist. But they also burned books by Ernest Hemingway and John right. Steinbeck and Helen Keller. Uh, of course. Because they were trying to destroy ideas. And that's what book bans and book burnings are always about. It's not about a dirty word. It's not about something that makes me, me feel a little squeamish uh, about sexual matters. These are people who want to crush ideas that they do not like. And the difference today, obviously, when the, the Nazis did it in 19. 33, the full force of the government was behind them. And this mm. was uh, a, a way to purge the country of ideas that they felt were, uh, were dangerous. Um, so we're seeing a different kind of official government sanction of ideas that make people uncomfortable, squeamish, that they simply don't like. 
it's more dangerous now, and I've been following this for a long time as a writer who's very interested in books. Uh, I've been following this for a long time from the 80s when the uh, the, the first uh, Supreme Court case about uh, school book bans was, was decided mm-hmm. uh, largely in favor of the students in that case. In suburban New York, it was called the um, Island Trees Decision. Right. And so I've been following this for, for, for 40 years. I've never seen this like it is right now. Book banning used to be the occasional thing here, somebody objecting to, you know, whether it was Holden Caulfield, a catcher in the rye at one point. Later on, it was Judy Bloom. Uh, then it became Harry Potter because Christians didn't like what, what they thought of as Satanism. Uh, hmm. For a little while, <laughs> a, big, a big hit was uh, Heather Has Two Mommies, a children's That's book right. about... Um, uh, a, a child who has two mothers instead of a mother, a mommy and a daddy. So that's always been part of the mix. What's happened now is the real weaponization of this by politicians. The fact that it's much more organized, partly because of we live in an, an age of social media. Uh, it used to be if somebody didn't like a book in uh, suburban Long Island, nobody in Iowa knew about it. Now, of course, these people are communicating with each other through social media. That's Lists right. are being shared. Very important article by The Washington Post the other day about um, how a very, very small group of people have been responsible for sending out these lists of books That's that right. are then being pulled off shelves all across the country. Um, it's it's so incredibly dangerous. It's so incredibly opposed to what education should be. And it's certainly opposed to what our notions of the First Amendment should be. Yes, parents should have a right to not allow their children something to read that they object to. What they don't have the right to do is tell everyone else that they can't read that book. Teachers and librarians understand this. If parents came and said, I really don't want my child to read um, or A Tree Grows in Brooklyn or uh, uh, you know, any of a number of these other books that have been uh, singled out for decades, mm-hmm. um, the teacher would always or the librarian would say, OK, fine, here's an alternative. We'll give you a, 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 a multiple choice. But there was never this sense of pull all these books from the shelves, right. put them away so that these children can't read ideas, which might be a very, very important ideas for them. And the notion that librarians and teachers are grooming children is so completely offensive to me that it's, it's, it's shocking and appalling that it's become part of the conversation. And God bless these ignorant fascists, Kenneth C. Davis, for helping these authors sell a lot more books. It is. Let me always- talk about that for just a minute. I, I know people say that, and it's always been true. You know, back in the day, in the 1930s, uh, well into the 1950s, publishers really would love to put the words "banned in Boston" on their uh, on the front of their books. Uh, it meant that this very, very conservative kind of puritanical. Uh, group up in Boston, uh, which had control of of the church and the newspapers and government, uh, would say, you can't read James M. Cain, for instance. Uh, the Postman Always Rings Twice. Right, of uh, course. A book which is included in my recent book, Great Short Books. That was a selling point for those people. And they 
took some pleasure in that. And I know that, for instance, when Mouse came in under fire in Tennessee recently, it immediately mm-hmm. shot to the top of the Amazon list. And that's fine for people who can buy books. But we're talking about children who lack access to books. Maybe their parents would go and buy them the book from the local bookstore that is supporting uh, banned books. But maybe they can't afford to go to the uh, bookstore and buy the books or, or their parents aren't going to buy them that book. The beauty of the library and the school library having these books is that it made it accessible and free to people who have no other option. And so that's why I think that this notion of it's good for the writers is a kind of dangerous notion because it still means that those books are being kept from the hands of the people who may be able to least afford them, who may need them most. Kenneth C. Davis is the author of Don't Know Much About History and In the Shadow of Liberty and Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy, and more recently, Great Short Books, A Year of Reading Briefly. Mr. Davis, what is the best way for our listeners to follow you, sir, and keep up with all your many doings? Well, I'm available on don'tknowmuch.com. That's my website where I write about all these issues. I've written a lot about book banning recently on the front page of my website, Uh, I post there about things in the news, so you can go read about Memorial Day there. Uh, For instance, I still am on Twitter, at Kenneth C. Davis, at least for the present. We'll see how that shakes out down the road. Brilliant. Thank you so much, as always, for joining us, Kenneth. It's always a great pleasure, and we'll be right back. Thank you, John. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do.
Welcome back. Our next guest was one of the first Congress members to initially introduce a resolution to recognize May 10th as Asian American, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander Mental Health Day. We have Judy Chu to thank for that and much more. She serves as U.S. Representative for California's 28th District, formerly California's 32nd Congressional District. Ms. Chu is the first Chinese American woman elected to Congress and one of the few Congress members with a Ph.D. in psychology. And she's had a very busy year. She has fought for reproductive rights in the aftermath of Roe. She's fought for gun safety in the aftermath of the deadly Monterey Park shooting. She has fought racism in the halls of Congress, as this year, only a few months ago, Congressman Lance Gooden of Texas went on Fox to question her loyalty. And she's one of the top House Democrats who just signaled in a letter to President Biden that they would reject major cuts to social programs amid negotiations over the debt limit. It's a great pleasure to welcome a, a, a real busy person, Congresswoman Judy Chu. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And let me just begin by talking about the letter this week. I, I want to applaud you for uh, your putting your name on the line to fight for the social programs that have no business being cut in the midst of these debt negotiations. In fact... The uh, suggestion that we would have to do such drastic cuts to our social safety net is utterly um, is utterly ridiculous because the debt ceiling has only to do with paying the bills that have already been incurred by our government. And um, so uh, it would have devastating effects if we did not. Uh, come through with that. Uh, America's credit is something that is relied upon all throughout the world. But just think, if our credit rating goes down, what would happen to millions of Americans' uh, retirement accounts? What would happen to people who are trying to get mortgages for their home or are trying to uh, get a um, uh, a car car a leasing agreement, uh, all those expenses would go up. And we do not want to do this to Americans for uh, something that is not necessary. It's astonishing, Congresswoman. In 250 years, we have run up a certain amount of debt. One quarter of that came during Donald Trump's term, largely from his tax cuts for the wealthiest of Americans. And here we find our Republican brothers and sisters saying, well, the least of us, those who are struggling the most in this economy, are going to have to pay for the tax cut for the wealthiest. As someone with a Ph.D. in psychology, I imagine your job is endlessly fascinating. (laughs) Well, and remember this during that time in which uh, Republicans increased the deficit so drastically, they increase the debt ceiling three times That's right. with no problem, with no suggestion that we have to cut back on anything. No, they have been able to do that, and they should do it this time, a clean debt ceiling increase. Do you think the president will come down on that side? So far, he's playing his cards close to his vest, but keeps stressing he is only negotiating a budget and he's not negotiating the debt with them at all. Yes, and I am glad he's stressing that point. Uh, So uh, he is engaging in dialogue, of course, with them. But uh, I am glad that he is not saying that uh, we have to make these drastic cuts. I also, of course, uh, hope that we do not have any provision in there that we have to implement work requirements for any of our social programs that's right um in in order to get the debt ceiling increased it's it's 
not something that will save money anyway. So why put it in there? Yeah, they're they're not making any of the bankers we're bailing out have work requirements either. I applaud you for that, Congresswoman. Um, you, <laughs> yeah. you have consistently been a strong voice protecting women's reproductive freedoms. You have opposed any kinds of cuts of funding to Planned Parenthood throughout your career. You've opposed federal restricting federal funding of abortion care. Um, you've said abortion's not just health care. It's a fundamental human right. What has the feedback been from your constituents since the gutting of Roe versus Wade? How have the people in your district been reacting to this shock? Oh, on the days after the Dobbs decision, I have never seen my constituents so angry and so frightened. Uh, The Supreme Court took away a right that women have had for 50 years. And today... Young women have less rights than their grandmothers. That's it. We we cannot believe that we would be in this situation where um, some people are viewing women as just childbearing vessels. Uh, but that seems to be the case. They seem to be saying, well, uh, bring that child to full term, uh, regardless of whether it's the right decision for you or whether it's even healthy for you. So it is causing tremendous devastation to so many, especially in those those states that have banned abortion. Now, 14 states have fully banned abortion. And those women are now left scrambling, trying to find appointments in the other states. It is not easy. Um, They have to call around all the different states and then drive uh, massive amounts of of, uh, miles in order to get somewhere. Uh, It is a disruption to their work, to their family, and of course, can possibly be completely unaffordable to them. Exactly. So uh, this is not fair to women. This is not right for women. This decision should only be a decision between her and her physician. It should be her decision alone. Thank you. In your dealings with your Republican colleagues, do you get the sense that some of them are aware of how deeply, historically, widely unpopular this ruling was? I actually get a feeling that they are aware of it. And it is because uh, of the fact that every time it's been on the ballot, even in the red states, uh, the voters have gone with upholding abortion rights. Mm -hmm. And there are many who might be in the middle, they might themselves not want to ever approve an abortion for themselves, but uh, they don't want to make the decision for other people. That's right. And so, they, yeah, they are leaving it up to women to make decisions for themselves about what to do with their bodies. So it's a deeply felt feeling amongst many women, whether they are Democrats, independents or Republican. So I think that Republican Uh, lawmakers are kind of like just trying to to sit on the fence and not talk about it so much because they Mm -hmm. know it could backfire on them. And how's that working for election strategy? (laughs) Pretending it didn't happen. (laughs) Well, you know what? Uh, Democrats are not going to let them get away with it. They're going to have to uh, make themselves known in terms of what their position is on this fundamental right for women. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. This episode is brought to you by Philo. 
Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey all, Glenn Kirshner here. Friends, I hope you'll join me on my audio podcast, Justice Matters. We talk about not only the legal issues of the day, but we also talk about the need to reform ethics in our government. Here's one example, the oath of office. You know the one. I do solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Let's add 22 words to that oath. Quote, and I will promptly report any instances of crime and or corruption by government officials and employees of which I become aware. Friends, our democracy is worth fighting for. Join us in this fight, because justice matters. Look for Justice Matters wherever you ordinarily find your podcasts. I'm John Fugel saying this is Sirius XM Progress. Congresswoman, we are just a few months since the deadliest mass shooting in the history of Los Angeles County, um, the Monterey Park shooting, which was the second of three mass shootings in California in about a week back in, in January. And it was devastating. Eleven souls were taken from us. Uh, it was highly preventable. And it, it already seems, Congresswoman, that this is the new normal in America, that when I say the Monterey Park mass shooting, people have to say, which one was that again? Because so many have happened since then. How has your community been recovering and trying to heal since this devastating, awful thing? Oh, it was so shocking and devastating. Uh, People were numb. They could not comprehend that this could happen in our peaceful community. And especially during Lunar New Year, which should have been so joyous. Uh, So, yeah, it it took um, a long time for... uh, for the victims' families, certainly, to be able to recover. Uh, and it's taken uh, quite, a, quite a bit of time for Monterey Park residents and the surrounding areas to even feel that they can get back to normal. Uh, we have been emphasizing that people really need to move forward in their lives uh, because if they don't, then the shooter has won. Exactly. Uh, but I can tell you that... Um, the fact that people have extended their hands so um, so strongly uh, has helped in the healing. Uh, 
uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra came out to see what he could do. So did uh, the SBA administrator, Isabel Guzman, uh, to help the small businesses surrounding the shootings. And uh, when President Biden came, that was just incredible because he was just so consoling to each of the uh, victims' families. He, he is a very deeply empathetic man, and uh, yes. th- that helped them heal. This this shooter, he was an older man. There were so many signs that this was a man who shouldn't be allowed to have a gun. I remember the police saying that he he had showed up at the precinct saying his family was trying to poison him, uh, that he had been already arrested previously for unlawful possession of a firearm. He had a history of multiple 911 hangups and domestic disturbance incidents. I mean, any sane community would say this is maybe not the kind of man who should be allowed to easily own a Savage Arm 308 caliber bolt action rifle with hundreds of rounds of ammunition. It just seems, Congresswoman, that it was so preventable. So this brings up the reason for a bill that I'm going to introduce uh, requiring that there be outreach to different communities in language uh, on the red flag laws. You see, this man was deteriorating mentally, uh, as you could see from the paranoid statements he made to that police station. Uh, Mm -hmm. And he was accumulating ammunition. Surely somebody in his network could have seen that and they could have reported it and then the guns could have been taken away from him. Uh, But I very much, much doubt that anybody in the immigrant community here even knows what a red flag law is, even knows how to, to implement it. And so that's why I believe that we need outreach in different languages and in different communities about the red flag law, as well as, other gun safety laws, such as the way to safely store a gun. Yes. And maybe make it a little bit harder for people to obtain mass kill machines, um, especially when they well, have issues yeah. like this. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, please. Yes. Go ahead. At the heart of this is the fact that we have too many guns in this society and far too many weapons of war. These are these assault weapons that have no business being on our streets. This shooter had a high capacity magazine on his semi-automatic pistol and that allowed him to shoot 42 times in a matter of minutes. Amazing. These weapons only should be used in war and the fact that there's so many of them on the streets that can be obtained so easily is a crime in and of itself. And so that's why I am a huge proponent and an original co-sponsor of the assault weapons ban in Congress. And I thank you for your patriotism. Congresswoman, I, I, I have to tell you, I, I'm so sorry you had to endure what Representative Gooden said about you on Fox News. It seems like we are in a golden age of acceptable racism towards uh, Asian Americans from wh- whether it's Donald Trump talking about the China virus or the Kung flu and pushing these little racist jokes to distract from his own incompetence to Congressman Gooden, who more or less just chose to attack you personally and uh, question your loyalty on Fox. You did have a number of Republicans run to your aid and defend you, but I can just imagine how painful and shocking that must have been to have a colleague on television engaging in such naked, obvious racism. Oh, it was it was outrageous. It was disgusting. And it was 
something that made me so angry too because it just built upon a stereotype that's been there for decades which is the perpetual foreigner stereotype yep. where for asian pacific islanders no matter how long you've been in this country no matter how much you've contributed to this country or whether you've been someone like me someone born in america and served as an elected official for 37 years that we are forever foreigners in america you were talking about and, that yeah sorry go ahead and Please. so we have to we we just have to fight the stereotype i do have to say though i have great gratitude that so many from across america did condemn this statement and we yes. had national leaders that immediately came through with statements saying that this is not right to everybody from our leader hakeem jeffries to nancy pelosi to hillary clinton and many many national organizations of course many asian pacific island ones as well as the american jewish council and the urban league I was thrilled they rushed to your aid. I, I wish they would condemn Donald Trump's repeated epithets. Um, and as you know, Congresswoman, despite making up over 5% Please of the country's population, conference. Uh, despite making up over 5% of the country's population and, and much larger than that in some states, Asian American and Pacific Islanders are typically not the focus of most national political campaigns. Uh, obviously, we saw a huge turnout in 2020 and 2022. I'm curious, how, how do you think American, Asian American and Pacific Islanders can increase their voice at the national level? And, and what do you hope to see from this White House to address their concerns? People are beginning to see that AAPIs are the margin of difference in the victories of many campaigns in our red states. Um, and in fact, AAPIs made the difference in Georgia and in Nevada. Remember how um, slim the margin was in Georgia. President Biden won by 12,000 votes. Well, did you know that in the previous years, AAPIs increased their new registration numbers by 30,000. I like to think that those 30,000 made the difference for President Biden and then made the difference only uh, a couple of months later for Senators Warnock and Ossoff. Exactly what so I thought. the AAPI vote is increasing. And if you can appeal to those in that community, they will they will vote for you. That's what they did for President Biden and Senators Ossoff and Warnock. And they did make the difference. Judy Chu is the first Chinese-American woman elected to Congress. She proudly serves California's 28th Congressional District and is a superhero on so many fronts. Representative, I know how busy you are. We're so grateful you made the time. Thank you for joining us on SiriusXM. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, good. Come on back anytime. Oh, it'd be great. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. We gotta go. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Thea. I'm John Fugelson. Keep it tuned to SiriusXM Progress. Peace.